0: I was trapped. Can you imagine that? Have you had that experience? It's disconcerting. All right. Well, it's good to see you on this second Sunday of Advent. And uh, we're continuing our study in the prophet Isaiah in the section that's called the Book of Emmanuel. So last week we looked at chapter 7. Today we want to move on to chapter 8 which I'm entitling Signs and Symbols. Uh, One thing I wanted to note for you just on a little bit different line is that uh, uh, we have a tradition here at Grace Bible Church that Around the Christmas time, we take a special offering for, uh, to enable us to do different projects. And we're going to do that again this year. I wanted to let you know that. And we plan to send out an announcement uh, detailing that a little bit more in the coming weeks. So you can uh, watch for that. Okay, Isaiah chapter 8, uh, verses 1 to 18. The Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So I called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Jeberakiah as reliable witnesses for me. Then I made love to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to say, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of of your land, Emmanuel. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand. For God is with us. And that's actually the repetition of the name Emmanuel again. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place or a sanctuary. But for both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken, they will be snared and captured. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. Signs and symbols. And what I want to do with you today is consider these uh, symbolic names that Isaiah is instructed to give to his sons. Now let's... uh, Let's set the stage again. Uh, We looked at this last week, but uh, it's the same general stage. It's in verse 4. Before the boy, in this case, Mahershalal Hashbaz, the second son, for before the boy knows how to say, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. So here's the players. This prophecy is given in Jerusalem, which is part, it's the capital of the, the, what we call the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, the house of David. To the north is the kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes that seceded from the house of David some uh, 300 years before this. Capital is Samaria. The king there is called in this text the son of Remaliah. To the east is the kingdom of Aram-Damascus, capital city is Damascus, and the king here is Rezin. To the northeast is the mighty Assyrian Empire. The background is that the Assyrians have been oppressing all of these small uh, nations to the south and west, oppressing them by levying on them uh, heavy taxation. And, uh, And what happens in those situations is that if If nations that are under pressure like that feel that there is a weakness or an opportunity, they stop paying tribute, they rebel and that's what happens here. Uh, The two kingdoms of Israel and Damascus sense an opportune time, the Assyrians are off fighting somewhere else, they decide they're going to rebel. But they know that the Assyrians are mighty, powerful, dangerous, and so they want to enlarge their coalition if they can, and the obvious group that they want to pull into the the coalition is the kingdom of Judah. But King Ahaz in Jerusalem says, uh, that's not a very good plan because there's much more strength in the Assyrians, and you realize, I'm not going to play that game. I'm going to pay pay my tribute and stay out of this. The response of the two northern kingdoms, then, is to say, all right, if you don't want to play with us, we're going to invade. We're going to topple Ahaz as the king and put in someone more favorable to us, and he's simply called the the son of Tabael. And uh, that's their purpose. So they they start their invasion to the south. And Ahaz then says, "Uh, I'm a loyal subject of Assyria. I'm going to appeal for help. Which he does. And the Assyrians come. Now they would have come anyway. But but that's Ahaz's strategy, and he appeals for help, and, uh, and it appears to work, because both in chapter 7 and chapter 8, you get this thing before the child knows how to discern right and wrong. This, in that case, it's the Emmanuel child who's going to be born, right? Before he can tell the difference between right and wrong, a year, two years, Uh, those northern tribes or those northern kingdoms are going to be destroyed by Assyria. And in the section we looked at, we just read, it's a similar thing. Before Maher Maher Shalal Hashbaz, imagine mom's calling that boy for lunch every day, right? Uh, Before he is uh, uh, old enough, to say, my father or my mother. So again, you know, what, a year, two years? Uh, Before that happens, the wealth of Damascus, this kingdom, and the plunder of Samaria, they'll be carried off by the king of Assyria. Now, that doesn't mean that there is approval given here to Ahaz and his policies, right? And we saw that last week. Uh, What I want to do is look at these names and think about what they are as signs, because that's what Isaiah says. I and my children are signs. So let's back up to chapter 7 and... We didn't really talk about the name of the first son uh, last week. There we go. Uh, Shear Yashuv, Sheer Jashub, however you want to pronounce that. Uh, he shows up in that chapter seven. Remember that. The Lord gives instruction to Isaiah the prophet to go out and meet Ahaz as he's out by the the watercourse, the aqueduct. Apparently checking out the water source for the city, expecting that there's going to be a siege. And so the watercourse is really important. And that's where Isaiah is sent. But he's sent with his son, Sha'ar Yashuv. Now, what uh, does this strange-sounding name uh, do as a sign? Well, the meaning is a remnant will return. A remnant, a small portion, right? Uh, A remnant of fabric is is a trimming or a small piece of a larger cloth. A remnant, a small portion of Israel and by implication a small portion of Judah as well will return. How do we understand? What's the return about? Well, part of what's being referred to here is return from exile. The Assyrians are coming. And the policy of Assyria is that when they invade, when they take over one of these nations, they deport part of the population. They put them into exile. And the the thinking behind that is that you take some of the people and you, and you tend to want to take the brightest and the best. And you remove them from their own situation and all their connections. And if these are the leaders of the people, they are probably among those who fomented the rebellion, right? So you're going to take those people and you're going to relocate them at a great distance, relocate them to an area where they don't have any connections, where they don't know the language, where they don't have access to power and influence, And that way you're going to keep peace in the conquered lands. And so that's what we know the Assyrians did with the kingdom of Israel after they invaded. Assyrian records say they deported about 27,000 people. And what the name Sha'ar Yashuv says is only a small portion of those people are ever going to get back moreover uh, i think this looks ahead i i think isaiah understands that the problems in israel that lead to god's judgment and to the deportation of these people the same issues are at work in the southern kingdom in judah And and so I think Isaiah is able to foresee that a little over a hundred years later uh, the people of Jerusalem and Judah are going to rebel against the next great empire which is Babylon and there's going to be a repeat of this story. Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be sacked and burned. And A group of people from Judah now will also go into uh, exile, not up in the north here, but they're going to go uh, east to Babylon. And of these people as well, only a remnant will ever come back. Uh, The remnant comes back, you can read about in Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament that's the story of the people who return but that's not most of the Jews who go into exile most of them don't return remember Daniel he goes in the exile of the southern kingdom was actually in a couple stages Daniel goes in the first stage and he never returns so returned from exile only a remnant will ever come back that's true to this day. In 1948, uh, Israel was established as internationally as the Jewish homeland. But the majority of Jews in the world still live outside of Israel. So they are the, it's called the diaspora. And they are, they are still in the diaspora. They're still dispersed. But as with many symbols, there's more than one way to think about it, right? So only a remnant will return from exile. But uh, here's here's the way symbols can have multiple meanings, see? We've seen before that the word return is a symbol for the word repentance, To turn back to the Lord. That's the idea of repentance. And, And so what this name is saying to the people of Judah is there's an exile coming and most people aren't going to get back from that. But it's also saying Israel and Judah have departed from the Lord, and only a small number of them will ever return. All right, my mental computer is saying recalculate, recalculate. Uh, So what I'd like to do, I'd really like to stop and talk some more about repentance. (laughs) And I know I'm uh, hammering that one pretty hard. But it's one of the most important things, I think, that I've had to teach you in the last five years. And, and we're slow to get it. At least I'm slow to get it. So I'd like to stop here, but uh, we'll save it for another time, right? So here's two <coughs> important themes. And, and what we need to see is that in those statements, a remnant will return and a remnant will return to the Lord, is both judgment and hope. It's, It's judgment in the sense that only a remnant will return. Only a remnant. That's judgment, isn't it? But it's also hope. A remnant will return. So there's both. I think the Apostle Paul understood this uh, so well. He obviously had read and digested these sections of Isaiah, not just the chapters we're looking at, but the later chapters. So in Romans 9 to 11, Paul is wrestling with the question of why is it that the people who received the promises of the coming of Messiah were the people who by and large rejected him? How does that work? And Paul finds help and guidance and confirmation of his understanding by going back to the prophets. And what he does here is he actually quotes from uh, chapter 10. That if you're reading along here, you'll see these verses. But it's this idea of the remnant again. Paul says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea. And that's an allusion to Hosea 1.10. Remember, Hosea, in the midst of messages of judgment, gives these messages of hope. And he says, still, the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea. So now Isaiah is thinking about Hosea, and Paul is thinking about both. <laughs> Though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Paul says that helps me to understand what's happening right now in my time, why there's such resistance, and why that resistance, we may say, continues even to this day. There is a remnant of the Jewish people that received the Messiah. But at this point, only, only a remnant. The good news is, Paul also looks ahead to a day when that is also going to change. But that day seems not to have arrived yet. Sha'ar yeshuv, a remnant will return. Now, the, the second name here, the second son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. The Lord says, uh, Isaiah, get reliable witnesses and write this on a scroll. We're not really sure what he was writing it on. It may be more like a placard. Maybe it was the, the first downtown Jerusalem billboard. Okay? Or like the lighted Souterton sign across here. Something that people could see and read. A public statement. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And then uh, his wife conceives and they have a second son and the Lord says, now I want you to use that name for your son. What does it mean? It means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. And it seems to be talking again about uh, the political circumstances of the day. Name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz, verse 4: for the boy, before the boy knows how to say, Mother, Father, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. It's a statement about the speed with which. Assyria is going to respond to the rebellion. It's going to be quick. Their soldiers will be quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. And, uh, you know, that's a word that uh, people wanted to hear. Ahaz wanted to hear that. That's confirmation of his political machinations, right? His scheming. Get help from Assyria. But here's what the Lord says then. The Lord spoke to me again because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Rezin is the king of Damascus, the son of Remaliah is king in Samaria. The two enemies immediately to the north. What does it mean that they rejoice over them? Well, I think it means when folks hear the message that the Assyrians are coming and they're going to whoop on the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Damascus, the people in Judah said, yes! (laughs) That's what we've been waiting for. That confirms our policy. They rejoice over those two kings in the sense of a triumphalistic, you're getting exactly what you deserve. Make sense? What did I do? (laughs) Wow, we went through a number of them, didn't we? Yes. Yes, yes. All right, calm down. (laughs) Well, here's here's the response of the Lord through Isaiah. This people is rejoicing over what's happened to those two northern kingdoms. And they're saying yes to Assyria. This is great. They're coming. They're doing their jobs. This is exactly what we wanted. And the response of Isaiah is... Don't trust the Euphrates. Now here's symbols again, right? The Euphrates, if you remember your geography there, the Euphrates is the major river that flows through Assyria. And, uh, and that becomes an image then. Verse 7, therefore the Lord is about to bring against them, that is Rezin and Remaliah, the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates, which is the king of Assyria and his armies with all their pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. I'm not sure just what this picture is from that I grabbed here, but uh, you know, every seems like every spring now, we hear of flooding in the midwest right the mississippi or the missouri river which flows into it and those flat lands of iowa and missouri and so forth these big rivers when they get out of their banks there's no stopping them and that's the picture that isaiah is using to warn the people of Judah who are so pleased with what's happening in the north. He's saying, you know what? The river is out of its banks, friends. And you think that the river is going to be contained? Do you think the armies of Assyria, those soldiers who can smell the plunder, who are Filled with battle lust, and sweeping down through Israel, from north to south, Dan and Galilee and the Jezreel Valley, and then Samaria and Bethel oh, Bethel, we're getting right close to the border now, friends, and here they come. What do you think's going to happen? Are those soldiers who see each little city and town as a fresh opportunity, are they going to come to some magical line and say, oops, there's the boundary with Judah, our ally. We we can't go over that. Isaiah says, what a ridiculous notion that is. Don't you understand That the Euphrates is out of its banks and it's going to sweep across and yes, he says, it's going to pass through reaching up to the neck of Judah. Which is another way of talking about how all the smaller towns in Judah are overrun and only Jerusalem maintains its... uh, position. That's what's going to happen. Don't trust the Euphrates. Well, what are you to trust if you don't... If you can't trust Assyria, I mean, it's a tough time. you got to trust somebody, right? Yeah. You do. And that's the word of judgment that comes, verse 6. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. Well, this doesn't look like the mighty Euphrates, does it? Even with a good, uh, a good rainstorm, that's not going to do much damage or any at all. This people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. Shiloh probably refers to that aqueduct that runs from the spring of Gihon down to the pool of Siloam. It's, it's the water course that, that Ahaz was inspecting when we first encounter him, right? It's the water that, that it's the spring that, that brings water to Jerusalem and it flows gently. It's not a torrent, it doesn't have other streams feeding in, it just has the spring. So it's gentle. And it's a picture here of God's provision. So this whole thing of the contrast of the gently flowing waters which Isaiah says, or the Lord says, this people have, they've rejected the gently flowing waters. They've trusted in the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates. That's their mistake. The mistake is a lack of faith and trust in the Lord. And so here in Isaiah's day, as in every day, the, the message and warning of judgment is also an invitation, isn't it? We are invited again and again to be people who trust, who believe, and who trust not in our schemes, our agendas, our plans, but people who trust in the Lord and in His provision. I find that heart so hard to learn, don't you? Always quick to rely on my intuitions, my way of doing things. Slow to trust these gently flowing waters. And and part of it is that they're, they're gently flowing. And it seems like so much of the time I need something, it's more than that. That was Ahaz's issue. That was the people of Judah. They felt like they needed something more than the promises of God. All right. Quickly, let's pick up the third name. Emmanuel. Emmanuel showed up last week. The virgin will conceive and bear a child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel and Matthew tells us that that was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus right but what we suggested last week that there's there's probably a double fulfillment there there's a long term in Jesus but there's a short term in a child who's going to be born now in chapter 8 that name shows up again twice so who might this child be we said last week there's different guesses on that so I'm going to give you what I've become more convinced of the more I've looked at it. What I think is that the Emmanuel child is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I think he's, had, he's got two names. I think probably his mother named him Emmanuel and Pop came in and says, hey, I got this word from the Lord, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. She said, oh, Right. Uh, Emmanuel's easier because you can shorten it to Manny, right? It's easier calling for breakfast that way. Well, but seriously, I, I think that it's the second son who is also Emmanuel. The name that means God with us. So this boy in his dual names, on the one hand, says, Watch out for the Assyrians. Don't trust in them. There's big trouble ahead. And with his other name, he says, But people of Judah, hear the invitation. Trust God, because God is with us. God is with us in spite of the dangers. There are certainly many. <clears throat> Do not fear what they fear. That's this extended section, verse 12. The Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. Rather, fear the Lord Almighty. He's the one you are to fear. He's the one you are to dread. And if you fear him, then he will be a sanctuary, a place of protection. But friends, there are, there is so much to think about with these verses, huh? Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. We live in an age of conspiracy, right? I mean, how many how many different conspiracy ideas do you bump into out there? And the thing that The thing that troubles me is not so much that there's a lot of conspiracy theory, but that there are so many Christians who buy into it. There are so many Christians who are living with all sorts of irrational fears. Do not fear what they fear. Now, I understand there's proper caution. And God doesn't speak against that. But there's irrational fear. And some of it is linked to this idea of conspiracy. All the stuff that's going on, right? That that maybe people don't know about, but maybe they do. And, And now I become an insider because I begin to understand the conspiracy that other people don't. And... Do not fear what they fear. Now, our friends, just let me camp out here for a little bit, and let's, let's say we want to take that seriously. Because most Christians do not take that seriously. So if you want to take it seriously, what do you have to do? What you have to, among other things, You have to give attention to what it is you're listening to. So let let me suggest a, a few things that maybe you shouldn't be listening to. Maybe you shouldn't be listening to the news. I don't mean that... You just disregard everything that's happening in the world. But but the news becomes, for many people, a kind of drug. They, They have to get more and more. Now The fact is, we live in a day when the news has become more and more sensationalized. And as far as I can see, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about news on the right or news on the left. Virtually all of it is sensationalized. And it's sensationalized, among other things, to drive people's fear and anxiety. That's part of the way the drug works. So if you're hooked on that drug... you are feeding a habit of anxiety and fear. And closely associated with that is frustration and closely associated with that is anger. I see many Christians who are fearful, frustrated, anxious, and angry. And it's rooted to a great extent in what they fix their minds on. That's what Isaiah's talking about. So now, if we're serious about this, and, and I'm going to assume you're serious about it, and you're thinking, well, that, that's something I need to attend to, here's an experiment you might want to try. A one week experiment. An experiment in fasting. Right? In this case, not with food, a fast from the media. Consider this. Consider for one week going totally off media. You would survive. You know, you really would survive. So for, for a week, you say, I'm not going to listen to uh, national, international news. I, I'm just going to tune out of that. Remember Simon and Garfunkel? I get all the news I need from the weather report. That's, that was a good line. There's a lot of wisdom in it. So you can let yourself look at the weather app on your phone. But, you know, you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go fasting for a week. No news broadcast. Uh, what about other media? I'm going to go off Facebook. I... I'm off Facebook now. I've been off for a few years. Uh, I see a lot of this stuff being driven on Facebook. And some of you are hurting yourselves by that. So consider at least for a week. You're going to go off all that stuff, right? And then at the end of the week, you're going to say, what's the level of my fear and my anxiety and my anger? And if you really want to help it, you take some of that time you would have invested there and you spend it reading the Psalms. How about that? So on the one hand, you're reinforcing what you shouldn't be afraid of and you're, on the positive side, you're reinforcing the one you should fear in the best sense and the one you should trust. And then see what happens after a week. My guess is, what some of us would find out is that uh, we have been afflicted and that God would grant us some freedom. Do not fear what they fear and do not stumble. Uh, This is uh, an important theme. And uh, I'm going to land the plane here uh, quickly, but uh, we sang about it. This notion in Isaiah of the stone, it shows up in chapter 8, and it shows up uh, later as well. Chapter 28. See, I lay in Zion a stone, a tested cornerstone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Psalm 118 says the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes here's an Old Testament imagery and like a lot of these signs the imagery can function two ways it can function as a positive encouragement to faith it can also serve as a warning of judgment to come and uh, in chapter 8 where we are God says, I am going to be a stone of stumbling to the people in Jerusalem. Because they're trusting in Assyria, faith in me is going to become a stumbling block for them. And they're going to fall on the stone and be broken. On the other hand, later Isaiah says, or God says through him, I'm laying in Zion, in Jerusalem a cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be ashamed. Uh, That is to say, the one who believes in the stone that I lay will never be disappointed in their faith. Now you go 700 years and Jesus Emmanuel shows up And the people begin to wrestle with this guy. Who is he? Where is he from? What's he saying? His words are offensive. And what does Jesus do? He puts these passages right together, doesn't he? He says, Psalm Psalm 118, I'm the stone that the builders are going to reject. You builders, and the Pharisees know exactly who he's talking about, you builders are going to reject this stone. Yet this stone is going to be the cornerstone. All of God's purposes and plans are going to be aligned with this stone. On the other hand, those who don't trust in the stone will stumble over it and be broken. So in this symbol, there's both Judgment and hope, right? That's how these symbols work. A remnant will return. A remnant will return. The builders stumble over the stumbling stone or the cornerstone. But those who trust in it will never be stricken with panic. Let's pray. Lord, Thanks for the encouragement of these wonderful words. How relevant they seem to us today. How extraordinary that these ancient words that we sang about earlier would be ever true, ever powerful. Help us, Lord, to feel their power. May we be people who are oriented toward the cornerstone that you have laid, Emmanuel, God with us, the Savior of the world. In him we rejoice today. Help us to live in the reality of his coming and his expected return. We pray In his wonderful and powerful name. Amen. Good to see you, friends. Have a blessed week.